Well, hi everybody and a very warm welcome. Uh, my name's Joel, if you're new, and we are in the book of Matthew this spring term. Um, I'm gonna be looking at Matthew chapter 20 today. We're gonna to be reading from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Uh, let's have the video now reading the passage to us. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you may have uh, heard the story from Matthew chapter 17, where three of his disciples get to be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it. There was this, this high place where three had the privilege of seeing Jesus in, in his radiance. For just a while, light, glory shone, literally shone out of him. They saw him as, as the, the glorious Son of God in a way that, that that was it was especially uh, magnificent and in a way that staggered, stunned them, overwhelmed them. One of the things that happened was the voice of God the Father coming from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. That was the only instruction they received from him. Right there in that extraordinary moment, the voice of the heavenly father comes saying, listen, listen to my son, listen to my son. We spent a while that, that Sunday, a few weeks ago, 
talking about what that means. What does it mean that, that God speaks to us saying, listen to my son? And, and you'd have thought, surely, that these disciples would have taken that in. You know, it was such an overwhelming experience for them. Surely, surely, the rest of their lives, they would be paying extreme attention to literally every word that comes from the mouth of Jesus. It, it, it stands to reason. That's what they would do. But what we find as we go through the next stages of Jesus' career is, in fact, still extremely selective listening, at best. These disciples, well, they're sort of listening, but they're kind of listening, listening uh, to the bits that they appreciate, the bits that fit with their prevailing ideas of, 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 of the kind of life that they want to have, the kind of picture of the world that fits in with their, their existing worldview, the kind of ambitions, the, the kind of career prospects. Jesus, when he has things to say about that, oh, they're all ears. <laughs> But when he starts saying at the top of this passage that we're looking at today, words like the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he is going to be falsely tried, he is going to be beaten, flogged, mocked, and handed over to be crucified. It's like kind of tumbleweed. You know, it's just like, just let's pretend he never said that. It just doesn't seem to go down into their attention span their, their, their imagination can't receive it even though it's told us that he keeps reminding them, he keeps telling them this Jesus spoke about this many times but have you noticed if you've read the gospels before or heard the teaching of the, the bible before when it did happen when this prediction of Jesus actually took place the disciples all acted as if they were shocked <laughs> Jesus is being what, arrested he's been taken away I can't believe it. He never told us he was going to do this. Actually, he had told them many times, but they were not listening. They had not listened. They'd listened selectively. So, for example, in the chapter before this one, chapter 19, in another section of teaching where Jesus is talking to them about the rewards of following him, he, he refers in verse 28 to when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That landed, okay? These disciples were fascinated by that bit of teaching. They, or they listened well. They listened so well that they kept kind of putting the needle of the record back to that bit quite, quite regularly. But can we just talk again about the thrones? About uh, these thrones, I... Jesus, thank you for the other. Now, about the thrones, I, could you tell me about my throne? I'd like, can I, I'd like a purple throne. I'd like my throne nice and I'd like a long one I could lie down on. I'd, I'd like one with a big TV remote on it. I'd like my throne to be very high up. Let's, let's discuss the thrones. And, and, and actually the reference to the thrones is, is kind of minor in terms of how much space it takes up in Jesus' teaching, especially in comparison to his repetitive uh, mentioning of suffering and the cross. But nevertheless, oh, no, 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 no. Let's just, let's just recover. Let's come back. Let's just review. Just these thrones, Jesus. And even to the point where the mother of James and John gets sent in, the, the wife of Zebedee, to have a chat with Jesus about her boys and how, uh, how they really ought to sit on throne number one and throne number two, presumably the best thrones for the best boys. This has really got into their imagination. 
and, and we might mock these 12, but whenever we do that, we need to remember that we are foolish to mock them. Because we should think about the logical flow. Argue from the greater to the lesser. These are the ones who've been around Jesus for three years. These are the ones who've spent time watching, listening, learning, observing. These are the ones he selected to be his apostles. These are the ones who started the churches off. These are the ones who did miracles with Jesus. And so if we imagine that we would have done better, <laughs> we're fooling ourselves. Don't deceive yourself. It's foolish talk to think, well, yeah, I mean, these idiots, I mean, these idiots. Of course, if I was there, I would have listened very sensitively and very thoughtfully and, and carefully to the teaching about the cross because that, no, 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 that's, that's I would have understood how dare we assume that we wouldn't fall into exactly the same trap? The reality is that every one of us, every one of us brings to Jesus with us certain kinds of sort of conveniences, ideas, worldviews, things that, 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 things that we kind of baggage that we bring. Each of us, you do, I do, cultures do. That in their culture, there was a certain kind of set of assumptions, which we'll talk about in a second. But every culture, look, Thomas Jefferson, okay, 18th century, uh, third president of, of the United States of America. His culture was, it was imbued with rationalism, especially, especially Jefferson and his social circle. So the way he dealt with, with the Bible was to literally take a pair of scissors to it. He made his own Bible. He said, well, I appreciate this book, but I, I, I find lots of it just... Uh, you know, offensive, hard to understand, difficult to believe. So I just, so he literally chopped it up. He ends up with the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. And we might think, well, that's a bit, bit, bit ridiculous. Or what, 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 what a fool to do that. What, what, you end up with just the nothing. There's no Christianity left if you do that. But friends, don't we all feel the temptation at least to create a God, to, to forge a God into a shape that suits us? that appeals to us, that fits in with our preferences. And when we do that, we literally squeeze him out of the, the door. We, we don't have any real relationship with God if the God we've ended up with is the God of our preference. You might feel you have a relationship with the God of your preference, but you don't. You have a relationship with yourself and you, you're deluding yourself. We have to listen to him. We have to genuinely allow his words, his voice, to, to cut through our cultural agenda, our expectations, our private personal hopes and dreams, our, our secret ambitions and longings. We have to allow him to, to crunch through that with his true message. Otherwise, we're not listening. For these guys, the, the idea of the thrones had certainly caught their attention. And imagine what else is going on for them. It says large crowds were going with Jesus, large crowds. And these are the 12. That's exciting. When you, you feel you're being caught up with a, with a certain kind of populism, that, that this just Jesus mania is just breaking out across Galilee and then Judea and down into Jerusalem. It's, it's kind of inspiring, the crowds. Maybe you've been part of something with popular significance in your life on some degree, some level. And it can be a, a heady thing. It can be intoxicating. And of course, it's, it's interesting that both, uh, twice it says Jesus was going up in verse 17. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem really was up. You know, it's physically, geographically up. It's on, on a mountain. Uh, that's how they would have seen it. But it's, its geography is reflective of its spiritual significance. It was politically up. It was religiously up. It was, it was, it was where you went to be significant, to succeed. It was where you went to pull the levers of power. Jesus was, was it, going into the place of influence. And these disciples with all the crowds and the sense of movement and the sense of political upheaval. I mean, this is, a, this is potentially an insurrection. These crowds mean business. <laughs> they understand him to be a, a, a great leader. He's going into the place of power. He might set things straight. He might deal with our oppressors. That's what we want to happen. They're calling him the son of David. They're excited about him as a, as, a, as a messianic figure. In other words, chosen by God to be the appointed rescuer of his people. And there had been popular messianic movements up until this time, several of them. They had ended normally in disaster and brutal uh, uh, um, sort of enforced put downs by the Romans where, where would be messiahs had been taken away and executed. But with Jesus, it's not just that he's, a, he's, you know, he's good on his feet, he's a, he's a good rabble rouser and he's a good soldier. He can, he can put, a, put an army together. He can do miracles. <laughs> that puts him in a different league. He can do staggering miracles. He can, he can deal with someone who's got so many demons in him, he's called a legion. If he can deal with spiritual legions, I reckon he can deal with Roman legions. He can make the sea be quiet. He can stop the wind. I think he can stop our enemies. So the sense of expectation is growing. Popularity, fervency, robust enthusiasm is growing, and it's growing in a way that makes these 12 guys feel we're winning. We're going to something great and we're turning up in the capital. Like, like, a, like, I guess, like Scottish football supporters turning up to an England-Scotland match, turning up at Wembley, like we're here, we're going into the stadium. And these guys, they're turning up to, to show we, we, we have a stake in this. We have a position, we have a, we have a status, we have thrones to look forward to. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? And so you see how these kind of ideas can run away. And, and you see how actually this explains the weird development of culture since Jesus. Because... Most of us in Brighton, our objection to Christianity would, would be to do with this stuff, right? Most of us, we, we, we like to think of ourselves as kind of anti-oppression and we like to see ourselves as, you know, in, into equality and equity and justice, social justice. We, we believe in that, right? And so because of that, we, we, we are against oppression and the establishment and Christianity, well, that's kind of the establishment and it's kind of an insider's religion. It's, 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 uh, it's an oppressive religion and it so needs to be thrown out with all the other oppressive ideas of history. And the, the total irony is that when we express those sentences, when we, when we cherish those beliefs, what we're, in reality, what we're doing is we're just cherishing Jesus. We're rejecting Jesus because we believe in Jesus. We might call ourselves atheists, but the only reason really, culturally speaking, that we have this assumption deep down that the, the oppressor should be 
pushed back and the oppressed should be liberated. The only reason we take that seriously is because of the Christian heritage of our culture. It's been kind of, you know, reinvented and redressed up with kind of 21st century versions of social justice and, I don't know, Marxism, all the different beliefs that, that, that there are in the modern version, but really they're just kind of rehashed versions of, of, of Christianity. That they're, they're, they're people saying, it's, it's obviously right that the world should be fair and there shouldn't be oppression. Why is it obvious? It wasn't obvious to anyone else living in ancient times, but it is to us. Why? Because of the constant hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of influence of Jesus, 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 Christianity into our world. We, we've got it baked into our culture, even if we don't like it, we've, even if we reject it. So, so what we're seeing here is, is the, the closer we get to the real Jesus, the, 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 more, the more he overturns, the more we see he, 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 he actually expresses something that we, we've, we, we've actually we've come to receive as a kind of bedrock of our society. And I want us to look at, I want us to look actually at how this affects us in our, our individual lives. That's, that's the point of this, right? That's why we spend time in these books. I want us to see how Jesus' teaching in, this, in these stories, the teaching he brings and then the, the healing of these two blind men helps us to see, sort of see who he is, but also sort of see who we are by, uh, by contrast and, and how we can learn to, to be transformed by by learning him, by seeing him and having him change us inwardly. Let me, let me just draw out really simply three things that we can see through these stories. The first of them is honor through shame. The second is authority through slavery. And then the third is fullness through emptiness. Honor through shame, authority through slavery, and then fullness through emptiness. Honor through shame. These these guys are are really looking forward to honor, places of honor, looking forward to glory. But Jesus is making it clear that what he is going towards is the opposite. It's it's interesting in this place, he doesn't just say he will be arrested, he specifically points out he will be mocked mocked he'll be delivered over to the gentiles the non-jews to be mocked to be shamed and he said this is where i'm going this is where are you following me guys i want you to i want you to understand if you're my disciples no no servant is greater than his master no pupil is greater than his teacher i'm going this way are you coming too the route we're going, the place we're going is one of shame. And these guys are longing to be honored, longing to be recognized, lifted up. Coming to know Jesus will involve an overturning of our categories of honor and shame. We've, we've, we've at some point in our journey got to come to terms with that, that our preconceived ideas of what's 
what's honor? What's the kind of honor and respect and glory that I think I should have? Your, your closeness to Jesus will burst some balloons. Will, will, will cause you to have to deeply question, deeply, sometimes again and again through your life, your preferred ideas of how you should be honored how you should get glory because you're, you're following in the footsteps of someone who walked boldly towards shame and mockery being despised was at the heart of his vocation he was a man of sorrows rejected by me he was despised and rejected have you come to terms with that I ask you to because you need to see it either before you become a Christian or it's urgent after you become one. If you haven't taken this seriously, you will be horribly disjointed when it happens. You'll be horribly thrown. And to, to wake up to the reality of, of this is important. It means sometimes even having to deliberately change our perspective on things that happen to us, change our perspective on the way that we're treated. Sometimes this will be symbolically clear to us. I think of a story I sometimes tell of when General William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, was, was marching. They used to do public marches back in Victorian times when they just started. And they, they were an extraordinary movement at, at, at the start. This first generation of Salvationists with courage and compassion presented Jesus to the destitute and poor of Victorian cities. But they did it in ways that were hated. They were vilified for it. They were even beaten up for it. There was one lady that was kicked to death, uh, I think on the coast at uh, Hastings Beach. They, they suffered terribly. But on one occasion, William Booth was walking down the street with, the, with doing a Salvationist march and the man next to him was spat on. And he was just about to rub the spit off his, off his coat and Booth turned to him and said, don't rub it off, it's a medal. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like we have to rethink our categories of what's shame and what's honor. To be shamed and despised by the world, which will come in some way to us. If we follow Jesus, there'll be, we'll get a taste of this, just a flavor of it sometimes. Some of us will have to take a great long draft of it perhaps. There'll be periods in our lives where we'll feel the shame of the cross and and Jesus has warned us he's told us to expect it and it's it's worth dwelling on it because the weird thing is that our experience can actually distract us at times it can confuse us we can decide at the point of conversion I'm turning my back on the world and popularity. That's what it was for me. When I decided as a young man, I want to follow Jesus with all my heart. I knew I was saying goodbye to worldly acclaim. I was saying goodbye. I'm done. To, I'm dead to that. I don't care about what the world thinks of me. But in a subtle, weird way, it's peculiar how even inside the church, you can have a certain kind of worldliness in the church. It's so weird. It's kind of embarrassing because it's, it's pretty trivial. It's like, you know, our big youth festivals, young, young people coming up to me and saying, can, I, can you sign my Bible? <laughs> which, I, which is like, oh, good grief. It's like a kind of cheesy little kind of shallow celebrity culture that exists within the church, which is pathetic and embarrassing. But it's amazing how in more subtle ways it kind of creeps in. You might think, well, I'm not, 
who cares about silly people asking me to sign their Bible? Actually, in a weird, subtle way, we can find ourselves yearning for position, for recognition. And Jesus is saying, be careful, don't go there, don't go. That's not the way I'm going. That's not the way I'm going. And it can even creep into the church. It can creep into the church in another way as well. The church can be so longing for recognition from the world that it can blunt its message, seriously lose its voice. That's what's happening in 21st century England. The church is so desperate to not offend, so desperate to receive people's acceptance and not be rejected by 21st century culture that we're prepared to change what this book teaches, prepared to, to do anything possible to be in, to be acceptable, to avoid the stigma and the shame and the dishonor of the cross. But we don't really have that option. Jesus has made it so clear. And the people that are avoiding that right now are proving, though they be, sometimes recognize church figures that they're not listening to Jesus. They're not listening to him. They're listening instead to a passing culture whose whims and preferences will change all the time anyway. To whom should the church be listening? We should be listening to Jesus. I, I, I think it's really interesting that it says, it's, it's not mine to grant. Jesus says, it's not really mine to, to decide who sits on what throne. He kind of doesn't even let them go there. I don't even want you to be concerned about that, disciples. I, I, I don't even know. It's been prepared by my Father, he says in verse 23. That's a strange verse, because if we, we've been reading Matthew, we know earlier in chapter 11, he says, all things have been given to me by the Father. All things have been shared with me. He knows, he knows things. He says in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. There's such a sharing of mind between the Father and the Son. Why should Jesus not know who's going to sit on what throne? Why shouldn't he know? I think it's not so much whether he can know. I think it's what he chooses to know. What he chooses to know. I think, I don't think, I mean, the, the, the point being, is, is honour a bad thing? No, honor is a good thing. It's good to, we're told to honor one another. Honor is good. It's good to honor people. Sitting on a throne is not wrong in itself. Being enthroned, being lifted up, being given honor publicly in certain situations, that's highly appropriate. It's good for us to find ways to honor the honorable, to honor the things that God honors is ex ex extremely important sometimes. But here Jesus is sort of saying it's distracting as well. To be concerned for our honour and who gets the most honour is a distraction Jesus can do without. So I, I'm, not, I'm not even going there. I'm, I'm choosing not to know that stuff. That's for my father to know. You've got to decide sometimes to not care. You've got to decide not to be distracted by the issue of who's being honoured. It's so distracting. It's such a forceful distraction. It will tie you up. And just to say, well, Jesus has chosen not to know, I will not. I will let him honour as and when he chooses. And he promises to give honour. <laughs> That's his way. He, he gives honour. He shares honour with his, with his disciples. He's, he wants to give honour to all of his children. But let him do it in his time, in his way. Let him lift you up. Let him exalt you in due time as Peter says in his letter. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you. He will honour you. Leave it with him. Leave it. Entrust your ways 
to him and he will exalt you. The second thing to see is authority through slavery. I'm struck by the way that he talks about this cup. He says, can you drink the cup I've been given to drink? The disciples want to sit on these two thrones. Can you drink my cup, Jesus says? They say, yeah, we can. And they don't really know what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, what's he got in it? You know, is he Coca-Cola? Yeah, please. Jesus is saying, can you drink my cup? I guess in the ancient world, a king would have had literally cup bearers, people who, who tested the, the drinks to check for poison. To drink the king's cup is an intimate but risky place. It's highly privileged, but highly dangerous. <laughs> Can you drink my cup? Jesus himself shared the cup at the Lord's Supper. It represented his blood. And at the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father, if it, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. He's referring to the cross, saying, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me. Jesus is talking, when he says, can you drink my cup? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about going through pain. He's saying, can you drink this cup? Can you go through the suffering I've undergone? Can you, can you come through it? If you want to be honored, if you want to have authority. To desire spiritual authority is not a bad thing. To desire to have spiritual power to be able to have your prayers answered, to be able to do great things for God, to be used by God to do wonderful things. That's no evil there. That's a joy. If, 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 you, if you desire to achieve great things for God, to have a, an, an appropriate kind of spiritual power, a spiritual authority, a usefulness to God, but understand that the root to it will feel like dying sometimes. Real dying it will feel like he pulls your life apart. It will feel like, what is going on? What is God doing? Why is God doing this to me? What is, why is he making me go through this pain and suffering? Well, it's because he shares his cup with you. Because you're close to him. You get to taste the king's cup. You get to feel what it's like. And he's taking you through because Maybe he's answering your prayer. He wants to use you. He wants to give you authority. He wants to raise you up. But wow, be sure if he raises you up, it's going to taste bitter sometimes. It's going to be painful. Be ready for that. And then thirdly and finally, fullness through emptiness. So we've had honor through shame, authority through slavery, fullness through emptiness. Get this closing story to the chapter of these two men. I'm really struck by how we've got two men at the start of the story to whom Jesus says, what do you want? And you've got these other two men at the end of the story. Jesus asks the same question, what do you want? The first two men, we would like throne number one and throne number two, please. These two men at the end of the story, blind beggars. We just want mercy. Son of David, have mercy. And it's, it's the way that the Bible shows such strange upside down wisdom that the blind men are the wise men. <laughs> the blind men see clearly. James and John 
with all their wisdom, they see nothing. They still don't get it. They still, still don't get it. These blind men. Have mercy. That's all. Have mercy on me. That's, that's the cry of the mature follower of Jesus. Every day to be deeply aware of our dependence on mercy. Help me. Help me, Jesus. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Open my blind eyes. I don't see it like I thought I did. I don't know you like I thought I did. I don't know myself like I thought I did. Please open my eyes. Please show me who you are. Please, please give me the wisdom I lack. Please fill me in my emptiness. I long for you. I'm desperate for you. Help me. That's where to start. That's, that's how to live. That's how to do life. That's how to follow Jesus as these blind men go on to do. They, they embrace the shame. They're not looking for a throne to, to look good in. They're getting told off. They're crying out, have mercy. It says the, the, the crowds say, shut up, be quiet, be quiet. Shush, blind beggars. Shame, embarrassment. They don't care. They just want mercy. That's what you and I need. We need to think, honestly, Jesus, shame, suffering, whatever. I just want you. I just want you. I just want you to fill me up. I just need you. That's what you need. You need him. You need his work in your life, his mercy, his grace. You might not need the things you thought you need, but you do need him desperately. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these blind men. We pray in our blindness, you would be merciful. Would you open our eyes to see more clearly who you are, see our need of you, and to trust you, to follow you into all that you have for us, to drink your cup, take on your shame, and to receive your fullness into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.